Hey, what's up everyone? So today I'm on Brian Pickowitz. He is the founder of The Fitness Project. So he started really heavy into bodybuilding and over the course of time he transitioned into ultra running and he goes over, you know, kind of how he got there in the podcast, but he's has some really big goals and like how he wants to make an impact on the world and just how his life has unfolded up to this point. Super interesting. Hope you guys enjoy it. And here's the episode. I guess, you know, just kind of rolling into it, uh, just for anyone listening, what, uh, who are you and, and what do you do? So, yeah, my name's Brian Pickowitz. I run a company with my fiance. It's called The Fitness Project. And at The Fitness Project, we really make fitness work for the individual. So I think that a lot of times people think fitness has to be going out and trying to lose as much weight as possible, um, competing for something. Um, and even they might even see an image of myself, right? Like someone who runs insane amount of miles and think that that's what they have to judge themselves against. But for a lot of people, it's finding ways to make health a core part of their life. And we look at it as a project because each individual is their own project. Right. And, it's been something that we've been doing now for almost six years. The fitness project has been around for three. Um, but it's, it's really about focusing on the individual and helping them make one of their values health, because when we're healthy, it, it impacts everything else in a positive way. You know, and that, what, what like got you into fitness at all? Because if you think about it, like it is just alone, like fitness is, somewhat of an abnormality. I mean, there's a lot of people into fitness, but if you look at it like across the entire population, I think like actually spending a lot of time on fitness or really diving into it and taking it seriously is already puts you in like a smaller category. So like usually it seems like there's always something that's like a trigger at some point to start that. What was like your trigger that started the whole thing? Yeah. Well, I was an athlete growing up and I played sports um, I found, I think at a young age that that was really helpful for me to kind of get energy out. Um, I, I was, I was blessed that as a kid, I was, I, I was bullied a lot and, um, really at a young age. And then I had a lot of energy, right? Like a lot of like anger, a lot of you know frustration as a young kid. And then of course at that age, you didn't understand it. And instead of my parents putting me on Adderall or Ritalin, they put me in football. So they're like, Hey, let's, you know, let's put him in football and see what he does. And as I started to grow, it became this really positive thing for me. And then, you know, in high school, I played three sports. I was team captain, like all those standard, like, you know, principles or, or things that people do. And then uh, when I got to college, I had an opportunity to play college football, but I, I came from a small school in high school and I didn't have a lot of confidence. And I had a walk on you know, opportunity to play for the football team and I decided not to. And I told myself it was because I had to have this small surgery and like, oh, well, college, uh, focus on my grades. But it was just out of fear. I didn't believe in myself. And so there was a part of me that growing up, I saw a lot of kids who I went to school with who were great athletes who would talk about how great they were in high school. And they had opportunities to play in college, but they never really went for them. And I always kind of thought in the back of my mind, like, hey, I don't want to be like that. Like, I want to at least I want to give this a shot. And so I kept kept pursuing it. I started getting into fitness, bodybuilding to get bigger. Cause I was like, Hey, if I'm bigger, I'm stronger. Like I'll have more confidence in going out and trying out again, even if it was a rare shot in the dark. And I ended up walking on the football team. I made the cut. I played football at my college for 
three semesters and I was working full time while I was playing school or while I was playing college football and going to school. So it was, it was a lot. And I was like, I'm not going to be a professional football player, but I started to find a lot of value in bodybuilding. And so going into my junior year, I was about 250 pounds playing defensive line. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to quit and I'm going to pursue my first contest. And while I started competing and, and doing that journey, I found that fitness was the thing that made everything. Okay. There was a lot of uh, stress in my family. Uh, my dad had MS, my mom was sick and they were working and trying to push themselves, but that created a lot of tension in the household and we didn't have any money. So it was just a lot of emotional, like a lot of hard things to handle emotionally at a young age. And I found between that and going to school and, and all the things around me is like, I would have 60 minutes, go to the gym and for whatever reason, like that was enough to remind me like, Hey, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's something that, that you can keep pursuing and, and it's going to be okay. And as I kept pushing myself and pushing myself, I started to lose all this weight and people started to ask me for advice. Like, Hey, like, how'd you do this? Da, da, da. And I got to the point where I was like, Hey, you know what? I'm working full time. I had a friend who had a personal training business. I was like, what if, I, what if I started a personal training business during the summer instead of getting an internship? And I kind of tested out entrepreneurship, tested out like training people. Like, let's see if I like this. And then I was, I was highly blessed um, through merit, through need. I got a scholarship my last year of college. And that kind of freed me up to not have to work. Like I, I was working to pay for school. So I was like, oh, this is kind of the opportunity to test this. Like, do I love helping people? Do I love fitness? Do I love bodybuilding? And let's see like what comes of this rather than going and getting a standard job or looking for internships. Let's see if I can build my own company. And that's just kind of how it started. I built my first company uh, in college and then I graduated college and decided to go all in on that. And what I found is that fitness was such a gift, not just to me, but to the people I was able to serve from there. It's, it's just been a cornerstone of my life, just helping people find a way to health, not necessarily always fitness. Cause I think fitness can in, in the mind of the consumer or the mind of the person who's hearing about fitness can sometimes be overwhelming, right? Like it, it can be such a big task. And I think that if we focus on health and well being, it's, it's more approachable. So it's been a, a gift since then. I think that that's kind of like the, the beginning of my journey. What were you going to college for? Like, what were you trying to do? I studied political science. So uh, in New Hampshire, politics is really important. It's the first in the nation primary. And so the school I went to was a huge um, advocate of political engagement. So like I worked on campaigns in college. I worked for ABC, MSNBC. I interned for them. I actually had the opportunity to uh, interview Donald Trump on the Today Show. So like I had a lot of like engagement in politics. And as I was going through that process and doing all this work, it was like, it was a lot of behind the scenes work, but I was like, I want to be the person who's actually helping. Like I want to be the person who's able to contribute in more than this. So my junior year, I switched over to a business uh, degree and I ended up majoring in, I got a bachelor's in business and a minor's in political science. So it was a lot of political science, a lot of uh, philosophy um, melded with humanities and, and asking like, you know, what makes life worth living? Like what, what are the good things that, that we want to strive for as humans and as a society? And 
I was blessed that I had also worked full time. So I kind of got an idea of like what was waiting for me after college. And so working at a full-time job while going to school, I was like, Hey, if I can figure out a way to create something my own, there might be more of a opportunity for me to speak what I want into the world rather than feeling like I have to wait until I'm 40 to make an impact. Did you have like any desire to like go to that life? Like, was there, was it something you like potentially wanted where like you were thinking about, you know, like maybe, you know, it wouldn't be bad to like get a job and kind of do like that standard thing where, you know, you work for however long and stuff. Was that something that was appealing at all or was it, just like you were interested in the topic and that was like a way to get into that area or is it something you really wanted to do politics or business uh in in more like the political side yeah i i I was i was class president in my school in high school and i was civically engaged there um what what i didn't want it's easier to define what you don't want at times was when I was a freshman, I had someone who was uh, running Mitt Romney's campaign in New Hampshire. And he was like my gym teacher's son. And I spoke at like a, a thing and he's like, Hey, I need interns. Do you want to come intern for the Romney campaign? And I was like, wow, like I'm coming from the middle of nowhere. I lived in like a, where I grew up, which was different in the town I went to the high school. I lived on a mountain, 750 people. You'd drive 30 minutes to get anywhere. So the idea of going and being involved and like actually being a part of the campaign was really attractive to me. And so I went and I did that and I just kind of saw the way that politics works, meaning like the political system is is not just someone who there's so many different you know, entanglements or systems and processes to get someone elected. And that's where most people start if they get a political science degree, like they usually start in grassroots. And I just felt like that was kind of empty for me. Like I didn't want to be involved in that way. And so it was really helpful because that opened up my mind to say, Oh, well, Hey, eh, maybe I don't want to be the person who's running campaigns. Like that's kind of what this path leads to. Um, the other opportunity was to go get a law degree. And then, uh, you know, from political science, go to get law and then you can practice law You work your way more into politics that way. But um, I think what really inspired me is at the same time I started bodybuilding, someone gave me Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, like encyclopedia bodybuilding. Yeah. And, then, and then I, yeah. And then I read his uh, autobiography, Total Recall. And, and it talks about how he started in bodybuilding, became very successful. Then he moved into entertainment and then through the process of entertainment, he became more civically engaged. He was married to the Kennedys, like, you know, Maria Shriver, who was part of the Kennedys. And they were all obviously the, the, the uh, iconic family of American politics in the 19th century or 20th century. And um, that started him getting involved. He had like, uh, I believe that he did the president's council of health and fitness in the nineties. And then he started to get more engaged and obviously he became the governor of California. So the attractiveness to politics was something I wanted to do. And it's something I'm very still heavily engaged in mentally. It's not something I, I talk about on social media because there's, it's just, I think there's a level of self-awareness, which is like what, what, role is my social media playing right now. And I think that politics is something that should be discussed in long 
long form mediums to just give a snapshot of an idea about something like the student loan. Uh, this is recent. So like the student loans um, forgiveness plan or um, abortion or gun rights, I can give small insights to what I'm thinking, but it doesn't move the needle forward for the thing that I'm trying to do right now, which is impact more people in a healthy way. Um, the challenging thing for me is I'm, I would say I'm a very moderate person and I'm, I, I want to understand the problem. I think that America lacks moderation. I think the world lacks moderation right now. And I think, I think that the challenge for me is I think the more diverse conversations you can have with people who don't understand you and the more you can get them to understand you, right? Like if, if I can understand someone who has a completely different agenda than me, but I can also communicate what I think is best then we both see each other in a way that is best for society, ideally. And now, you know, for me, it's like, okay, well, that's not necessarily the, the, the season that I am in. Um, and so I, I've learned in this season to, to more lean into what I'm trying to give people that is helpful, which is, which is helping them have a higher quality of life. So politics has been a huge passion of mine. It will always be a passion of mine, but I think that seeing the journey that I am on is just different than someone who needs to be out promoting their ideology, which is what everyone is doing, which is not, not something that I would uh, appeal to. It doesn't seem reasonable to me. Do you think at some point you're going to like actively pursue politics and any like you're just gonna be a season where you do something more politically focused or do you think that like generally what you're doing now is more what you're going to spend most of your time on for the foreseeable future so everything has a season everything comes in waves and i think that the thing that i've learned is to know what season you're in right now, right? What season am I in? What's what, what, what message is important? Um, what is my criteria for success? And, and what are the, what are the values that I have? If I was to string out my life 25, 30 years into the future, this season is about health and is about building, building an impactful company that really makes a world of difference in how people live a part of that will be continuing. Like one of the things that we do is every year we run a virtual 5k and we take, it's a hundred percent pro the proceeds, a hundred percent go to, um, different, different, um, organizations or causes that we value as a company or as, as people. And so last year we gave away, we donated, I think, $1,250 to, um, a company that helps, uh, abused women bring like, just find like hotels for the night or like give their kids Christmases and, and like little things like that. Or they donate to, um, like single mothers. Like that was something we were really passionate about as a company. And the other thing we were really passionate about is giving, um, giving food to people during Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving, Christmas, those holidays that matter so much, because they bring you with your family. Like they're they're. It's not just about like the celebration of what's happening. It's about community. It's about people. Um, so we try to donate every year. Um, usually we split the proceeds into the two causes like that. What I would see is us continuing down that path. Um, for me, continuing to build businesses that in some capacity 
like I have the fitness project personally, I have maybe some other ventures that I think are removed from that atmosphere, um, which would be more of like uh, wealth vehicles or, or personal vehicles for continuing to um, accumulate capital that allow me the opportunity to give back in the future. Like I give back now, but I know that the, like, I think that the challenge for people is understanding that I, like wealth is not just for people to buy nice cars. The more people that I meet who have money, the more I see that you get the opportunity to do really great things with it. So if I'm looking at the next 10 years of my life, I'll be 38 then. It's like the, the, these 10 years are kind of like really figuring out the last five years have been figuring out myself. I feel like I have some footing there. 10 years is, is kind of creating a nest egg, creating vehicles, like building things that allow other people to have health, well-being, and then at the side, creating uh, abundance for Lindsay and I. And then when I get into my forties, like I do have ambition to be able, like if it's tough because I don't want to pigeonhole myself too much, but what I could see is moving back to New Hampshire because right now we're in Dallas and then being able to have the means to give back in a bigger way to my, the places I grew up, the communities I grew up in. Um, I don't know if that would lead to politics in those areas or if I'd stay in, te in Texas and be more politically engaged. And maybe there's some things I can do around here, but I think that that's more of what, what I would do is I think that, I think that the challenge of youth is feeling like you have to do everything now, right? Like I got to do everything now. I got to be so engaged now. And I am engaged, but it's just different when I'm in my fifties or I'm in my later forties. I think that that would be when that season would, would come into play, but doing things that provided the good of society are still important now. And it's just finding those windows there too. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about what you said earlier where you were saying, you know, like you consider yourself a little bit more like moderate and how like the world is kind of lacking moderation i mean, again, you could look at that from like a, a bunch of different ways of like where we're lacking moderation which I, I think we do but i was thinking almost that in in a way like there's almost like i feel like humans are almost built into to be extreme in something like if you look like like doing professional bodybuilding or bodybuilding shows is extreme like 100 percent running the amount of miles you do is extreme and if you even look at like the obesity problem, that is like an extreme thing. I think like there is like a built-in mechanism and I, I have this in myself too, or like, they're just like, it, there's an urge to like be overindulgent and extreme in something that just seems like it, it's almost unavoidable or there's like, it almost like you have to channel that somewhere. And when I looked at like, you know, things that I would use for myself when I was younger, like I was overweight when I was younger. So like there was kind of an extreme in, in eating and then I redirected that to fitness. And then, you know, I think a lot of people just get stuck in their, um, it, they get stuck in into an extreme and they channel all that energy into that. So I, I don't know. Do you think that, cause I always kind of thought of it as like, not necessarily that we're lacking in moderation, but we're just not channeling the energy into the right corridors and it's more like redirecting that. So I was just curious, like, do you think it's, do you think it's that, or do you think that it is just like a need to bring things back into moderation? Well, 
I think that what, I mean, if, if I was actually speaking from intellect rather than just feeling, what happens is there's different cycles. So you have to imagine, like there's so many different challenges inside of America, but I think America, I think that people who see flaws in America don't see the genius of America, right? America is the first time that there's been a society where people from every walk of life can come together. Right. Like you think about the way human existence has been like, we're not, even if you think of human history, that's like 3000, 5,000 years, right. You know, things evolve so slowly and there's this country that, you know, all things considered it, it gets established, right. Meaning, you know, you could talk about like what happened to the land and native Americans and indigenous people. Like you could have that conversation. Obviously there's something that's due diligence there, but nonetheless, we have this country. And people from every walk of life, different societies at this point can come and be together. And we've reached this point where, although there's things that need to change in the way that our psychology or the way that people are treating each other, um, we need to look at things like racism. We need to look at things that are um, problematic in human behavior. There's still this huge opportunity for something really, really beautiful. And that's only existed for 250 years, 275 years. And so I say that because if you think of that, and then you also think of the dynamics of America, America came from this extreme point in the 1940s where there had been so much turmoil in the world. And now it was the powerful, the most powerful country in the world. How does that impact the psychology of the people who are there, right? And so if you look at trends, um, a really great book on this is The um, Changing World Order um, by Ray Dalio, Why um, um, Empires Rise and Fall. It's like you have everything that happens after the 1940s, and then you have this massive boom until the 1980s, 1990s. And all, all along that timeline human psychology inside the country changes because people perceive that the future is going to be like the past so it does create this extreme behavior because people stop living out the values that created something really special right and so if we change it because it changes like you and i have a different perception than our parents and then our parents had a totally different perception than their parents and it changes. Like one of the things that's really fascinating is to think about the people in the 1940s, like that greatest generation. One of the things that made them so great is that their parents lived for, through World War I. And then they had, world, they had the Great Boom, but then they had the Massive Depression. And if you read stories about the Great Depression, it totally changes your paradigm on what, what hard times look like right now. Doesn't mean things aren't hard. Doesn't mean that there's not suffering in the world. But we have so many different luxuries now that don't seem like luxuries, like air conditioning, like the ability to have electricity almost anywhere, the ability to tap into the internet. And so I think that the, the desire for extremes is exacerbated by the perception that what we're doing right now is going to be the same as the past, right? So it's like people are fighting for the past and they're like, oh, well, the past should look like the present. And so that's one dynamic is not understanding that there's a cycle that's going on. But I think that to more to your point, to kind of bring it around, I do think that social media exacerbates extremes. Um, I think that because it's, if you look at, look at something like, um, there's a really great book called Expert Secrets. 
Expert Secrets is written by Russell Brunson. It's a marketing book. It's like, how do you market your company? And um, what he talks about, and this is written in 2016. I was reading it recently, going back to it. And he talks about, hey, like you, you don't want to be in the extreme. You want to be in like this prolific zone. Because like normal things, like normal weight loss programs don't really sell. So you've got to like kind of specialize in something that's more prolific. You don't want to go to the extreme example. You want to be like prolific, which is, you know, keto or paleo, which isn't totally like extreme, but it will like, it will allow you to stand out. Well, now look at how diets are being marketed, right? Look at how ex- like extreme examples are getting so much attention. And I think of someone like Liver King. I think of someone like Paul Saladino. Uh, I think of someone who, I think of, those are the examples that I see, right? So there's probably other examples too, but like that's extreme. It doesn't, I'm not saying, I'm not making a criticism of whatever they're doing because that's not my position. And I don't know, I don't have that, that knowledge. I haven't studied what they're talking about enough to see where the downfalls are. I do know there's some benefit, right? Like talking about eating liver, like that's really healthy. Talking about um, doing, like getting sunlight, you know, moving your body. Like, yeah, it's very healthy, but that's an extreme example. And he is an extreme example. Um, what are we, like, what does that show our psychology? What does that show uh, about how social media is exacerbating these ideas of extreme? Um, I think I would point more to social media um, I would say that social media is tapped into that desire for extreme and it just continues to get exacerbated beyond the point. And that, that is problematic. That makes sense because if I even look at like my own examples of things that I engage in extremely like running, it was exclusively because of social media. Like it was people I found, like I found David Goggins and, and you know, he is that he stands out, which goes to your point. He stands out because he, you know, you go from like just normal ultra runners and you have David Goggins and he is like the most extreme or one of the more extreme representations of that. And then I see that and, and it, it, it almost like adjusts the baseline too. where like now I don't view normal, like I don't view marathon, marathon running almost feels just kind of average. Yeah. And, and, I, well, okay. and then, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then now ultra running feels normal, more normal to me. And then, and then you, you just continue up the ladder where, you know, where marathon at one point felt like that incredible, like crazy thing. And then the bar just keeps getting moved with more exposure to social media where now my, my bar is like, you know, a hundred miles is what feels now like what a marathon felt to me years ago. Yeah. Well, you think of, but I think that's the expansion of human capacity too. Right. So I think of when I was a kid, I loved um, watching the X games. And when I watched the X games, I remember the first time who landed the backflip for the first time. I don't remember who exactly it was. It might've been like Mike Jones or, or someone like that. But I remember right after that uh, Mike Metzger and the next um, X games ran hit, two back-to-back backflips. So he hit a backflip, landed, then went to another jump and hit a backflip. And everyone was like, oh my God. (laughs) And then you fast forward three years from there, Travis Pastrana lands a double backflip. Like that is, that is mind blowing. So what we're doing is it's not just social media because social media didn't exist there. It's the ability for us to like take, like you think about how powerful it, and this is such an interesting thing. This is more of a theoretical idea. Um, but up until the 19, 
twenties, like you, you could only capture something like, or maybe in the 1890s, 1870s capture things through photo. Like that's when photos come around and you had books, right? You could write some books. Then you put 50 years on that. You have the radio and then you put 10 years on that. You have the television. And so now you're at the, you're at the place where you can capture these experiences of human greatness, Right. And it's kind of like Roger Bannister, right? Roger Bannister is the first person to break the four minute mile. And then from there on, everyone else was, it were dozens of examples of people breaking the four minute mile, but it wasn't until he did it. So I think what we're seeing now is we're just seeing human potential and human, human capabilities being pushed. And that does set a higher threshold because, and it's, it's tough because at what point does extreme become too far or, or who's holding down the moderate, the moderate perspective or who's helping people change in a moderate way. Because yesterday I was running and I was supposed to run 34 miles. I was testing out the track for the hundred K and there's, I don't have a whole lot of ambition to be like a top ultra runner in this season. It's just something that's a good challenge that I enjoy. And it kind of keeps me on the straight and narrow. But as I was running this trail, first off, it kicked my ass. Like it was, it was a brutal trail and I was present during it. I was, you know, net, very little like music or pot and just very present in the woods. And I kind of, sometimes I'll set distance goals, but today it, that day I was like, Hey, you know, I have like a time goal. Like I can be out here. I'm willing to give myself six hours out here. Um, and as I got close to that six hours, I was like, ah, I'm going to be at like 26 miles. I'll be at like 20. And I was like, why would I go and try to get the, the next eight? Like it, does it, does the extra eight miles make a difference when I run the marathon in four weeks? Not really. If anything, at this point, it might actually hinder me because the, the, my body needs to recover. Like there's so many different elements to it. But I asked myself, why am I trying to do this? The only reason why I'd be trying to do it is because I've set the benchmark in my mind and I feel like I have to prove it to someone else. And so I decided not to run them. Like I, I was very content and that's for me. And it'd be interesting to compare that because someone who's running a hundred K could easily look at me and be like, oh yeah, you're soft and you're a pussy. And it's also fascinating that running 25 miles could very much turn off someone who's trying to get healthy. Right. It, it could be like, that's so far away. Like I can't even, I can't even tie my shoes without feeling out of breath, which is reality. Like that is a very harsh reality. Like we've had clients, I've had clients join our team who were former uh, football players in high school. were always fit and healthy. Um, this guy in particular, I was thinking of, he's, he's like, yeah, I'm like 285 pounds now. And like, I can't even bend down and clip my toenails without feeling out of breath. That is reality for a lot of people. Right. So we think of, do these extremes help motivate us or, or, and do we always have to push the extreme to help people or what's the intention of the extreme? And I think that that's the really important thing. Cause if your intention is to keep pushing your own extreme, that's fantastic. I think that the key is understanding where you're trying to go. For me, it's like, I don't got like the extra eight miles. Who am I going to impress? Do I care about impressing those people? Do like, does it, is that even important to me? The desire to be seen as the extreme is an, is a, in a very tempting motivator. But I think 
having the self-awareness of what your intention is, is more beneficial in my perspective. Yeah. And, you know, cause I, I even just, you know, kind of experienced that, you know, often where it's like from that perspective of like, I'm, if I'm out running in like a similar situation, it's not even, I, I find more that I'm like trying to impress myself, which is like very much based in like insecurity that still exists. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, I will have that conversation of like, well, you know, a, a, you know, it, if I quit, if I don't, you know, complete whatever I set out to do, then this is a reflection on me. And it's the same thing of like, I'm seeking validation for myself, which is really no different than seeking validation from other people. It's kind of like the same level of uh, same thing to some extent, but it's, you know, I'll, I'll find that when, when I complete it, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, a drug that I get to try to view myself as extreme. Like you said, like there's something super attractive, especially like if there's some like, like deeper level of insecurity about feeling like you're doing something very extreme. It like gives you, it's, it's almost like, um, it's almost like the idea of like believing in really crazy conspiracy theories of just like you are in this very special group that other people don't understand and it, and it, it almost gives like this uh um this like drug-like feeling yeah, for a little bit like a, really like easy yeah yeah what so like when like do you experience that then like when you go run like is there a part of you that like you you feel that or is it something that like you don't necessarily i don't know like like when you when you stop short of 34 or, or whatever you were sitting out to do like, did you feel any of that where it's just like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not as badass as I thought or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I come from the position where I pushed, I, I, I was at this point where when I was competing with bodybuilding, I had moved to Los Angeles. This is in two, this 2017 I moved to Los Angeles and I was like all gung ho about pushing to be a professional bodybuilder. And I put like, there's one moment the day before the contest, the day of the weigh-in where I had to lose seven pounds of water weight in order to make my weight. And I sat in a sauna for two and a half hours or two hours or whatever. I, I lost the weight in eight hours. It was extreme. And the whole time I was just sitting in the sauna and I was fucking pissed. I was pissed. <laughs> I was pissed off that like my coach didn't listen to me. And I was like, Hey, I think I'm a little too heavy. I was pissed at, at the whole idea that I was in a situation. I was pissed that I was neglecting my health, but I'm also a psycho and I did it. And I just like, Hey, I won't drink any water. I won't eat any food. I'll go do three sessions in a sauna. I'll, I'll come back. And this is how I'll spend my day because I wanted to win. And as I was sitting in the sauna the last time, I was like, I'm never going to do this again. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done. This is stupid. Um, but I committed to this and I'm going to go all out. When I ran my, I mean, I have so many different examples, but you know, I know how to, what I told myself, it's different. So this is very much like a new concept that I'm working through, like in this present moment. But I know I told Lindsay yesterday, I asked her, my fiance, uh, cause she was with me. I was like, Hey, like, I just need you. As long as you're okay with this, like, I know how to push myself, right? Like I, that's not like the issue, right? That's the, and this isn't even a race. This is like a practice run. So like when the day comes, I will know how to do it. But like today, this is what I actually think I need. I need, I want to spend, I want to go hang out at the lake with you. 
Like there, there's a little lake there. And I was like, I want to jump in the water with you. I want to, I want to go have a nice meal. I want to relax and like enjoy our ride home. Uh, I know that if I'm going to try to compete the, complete these miles, it's going to require another hour and a half of my time. And I don't, I just don't want that right now. Like I, it just, and so it's it, but the point, the perspective is though, I had already run 26, right? Like it wasn't, it's, this isn't quitting at the beginning of the journey. This is having the self-awareness to know when enough is enough. When is, when is, when is that point where you're actually fulfilled or you're proud of yourself? Or when are you saying like, Hey, you know what, if I keep doing this, my future, like the future of what like this could do might not be as good as if I say no right now. And in, I think that there's a, that's the intention. So like, I know how to, like when I pushed myself to complete my 62 and a half mile race, there was a part where like at mile 45, I was like, damn, like, like, I don't want to keep doing this. And the worst part was it was Lindsay's birthday. So in my mind, I had made up this like, okay, if I run this pace, da da da, the first mo- 30 miles I crushed. And then I like kind of hurt my knee and the coming down a trail. And I was like, oh, I went the wrong way at one point. I'm starting to lose steam and I'd never run that distance. So I went way too fast at the beginning. So I'm at like mile, like 35, 40 in like all this guilt and shame and judgment and weakness comes up. Cause I'm like, fuck, it's her birthday. Like I was planning on being out of here by like maybe 8 PM, 9 PM. We could go have a nice dinner. And like, I feel like that would be a nice little balance. And I'm neglecting her as a fiance. Cause you know, this is supposed to be her day. And like, I scheduled this without her permission. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and at the same time, like, why am I doing this? Like, I, do I really care about posting? Is it just to post it on social media and let people know how awesome I am? It, like, why am I, like, I already ran more miles today than I've ever run before. Like, Oh, would it be okay if I just did the 50 K? Would that make me feel okay? Like, so you have all these thoughts. And I think that the key is like in that moment, like I persevered and I pushed through and I got done the race. And I think I, I, you know, I, I completed it and, towards the end, Lindsay came out and ran like the last like 15 miles with me. And she kind of paced me and like the experiences that came from those last miles were so beautiful. And there was so much gratitude because we were doing it together. There was this one point where like, I was dying at this point, like my legs are given out, like uh, I'm dehydrated. There's no aid station. And we kind of ended up walking probably at like a 17 minute pace between for like two or three miles and just talking in this massive Canyon, there's no social, there's no uh, cell service. You're just there out in the middle of wilderness and it's dark. We have headlamps. And as we're coming up to like the last like five miles, there's another runner who's as in as much pain as I am, but they're coming up behind me and we stop. And I'm like, you know, if I don't like, like this person is going to beat me. Like, and, and so this is where the key is like, what, what's going to make me feel good? Like, what am I going to, am I going to be proud of myself if I walk the next five miles or am I going to be proud of myself for pushing myself? And so I looked at her and said, Hey, we're going to eat these next five miles. And then we picked it up and we ended up hitting like 11 minute pace to finish out those last five miles. And it was a perfect ending. So the point is like, there's times that the extremes are worth it. There's times to push yourself. 
And sometimes pushing yourself is putting your shoes on. Sometimes pushing yourself is going for the walk. Sometimes pushing yourself is deciding to not have that extra glass of wine. Like, I think that people need to determine what, like what their comfort zone is. And then once you get to a certain point, it's assessing like, why am I still doing this? So I think for the person who's, who's starting, it's like, yeah, you have to build up your tolerance for discomfort and you should define what extreme looks like for you. And realistically, you should just push yourself to the point where you feel like you're doing something hard. And once you've assessed that, once you're kind of raised that threshold, then you get the point, you get the point of self-awareness of like, Hey, what's the, what, like, why am I trying to go to the next, the next point? Like, what's the intention? I think that raising your threshold to do hard things, raising your threshold for pain tolerance, raising your threshold for some level of self suffering is totally worth it. Once you reach that point, that's where the discussion comes of, Hey, why am I trying to do this other thing? Is it for something that's arbitrary which is just going to, it's just because I said I was going to, like, I just told myself today that was what was going to happen. Is it because there's a benefit and a reward at the end? Um, I think that each person owes themselves that. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's definitely something that I think running has taught me a lot is like the importance of like really clearly defining why I'm doing something because then like you, like I can go pretty far without like really clearly defining that. But then when, like, when you actually get to like the hard part, like the really like meat and potatoes part, that's when it's like, you have to have something like very concrete, clearly defined because otherwise it's just like, am I just like doing this for no reason? Like, that's like the one thing I always hated, you know, whether I, even in like work or something like, like when I was in the army, I was like, the number one thing I hated was doing something for the sake of doing something. It was just like, we well, just need to be busy. There's no reason to do this aside from you just need to look busy. And that would always drive me nuts where it's like, I need like a very specific, why am I, why am I doing this? And I think, you know, that's where pushing into like kind of whatever extreme is to someone. Like, I think that's where, like you really figure out those lessons. Like you were saying, like the last like 20 miles of, of any race, honestly, like any race that's like, it could be a 5k, whatever someone's pushing, like the last, like, you know, call a quarter of it, of the race or so is like really the, like where everything just gets condensed into that, you know, where like you've learned all those different methods and stuff. So like, I, I kind of talked to you about it on Instagram about this, but like, why, so like even with that race specifically, like why did you sign up to do that race? Like what was your whole framework of reasoning for that? The the last hundred K? Yes, yeah. Or like or your first one, whichever one it was your first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, my first one. Well, so Lindsay and I had the opportunity to live with one of our clients once. That's what brought us to Dallas. So I had this client who wanted to come have us come live with them. He handed me Jesse Itzler's book, Living with a Seal when I first met him and he's like, you know, I've been thinking of having a trainer come live with me. And I was like, I could do that. Like, and I was, and, and, and I had never met this guy. It was the first time meeting him. And then, uh, I saw him again a couple of days later and he's like, you know, I really considered that. And I was like, uh, this is a once a lifetime opportunity. This man's incredibly successful. I will learn so much from this. Um, it was, it was, it would take us out of living in Los Angeles to living in Dallas. And, uh, I took the opportunity. I said, yeah, let's, let's, let's put together the package and we'll, we'll go and do it. And so while I was living with him, he was one of the most wealthy, he is the wealthiest person I've ever met. But what was amazing is he started from nothing. 
So he grew up in a very similar area to, uh, you know, New Hampshire than I did. He didn't have, you know, wealth. He wasn't someone who inherited money or his parents could give him money. When he was 29, he decided to start his own company and I won't go too far in the details of what that company was, but he started his own company with nothing more than a fax machine and a single employee. And now it's one of the biggest in their industry in the whole country. And what he was talking to me about, he's like, I just, he's like, I used to just sleep on the floor. He's like, I'd sleep on the floor. I never got anything. I never had anything. Like I wanted to suffer as much as I could. And he's like, that was kind of what drove me. And he's like, that's where I started to build up my habits that made me wealthy. And I was like, okay, well, how much am I willing to suffer? Like, how much am I like, what's my threshold for discomfort? And, uh, that was the, the, my way of finding that threshold. It's like, how much am I willing to be uncomfortable? How much am I willing to suffer? Um, how much can I push through and what can I learn from my, about myself by doing that? And so that was my intention. And I kind of went into my own, and quite frankly, I went into my own comfort zone, right? Cause like I could have picked a bunch of different areas, excuse me, that would have been un- uncomfortable or would have raised that threshold. But this is the one that I thought Hey, like I know how to push myself with fitness, but can I go beyond that level? And, and so that was kind of my intention was to raise my threshold for discomfort. And the benefit to that has been remarkable. Um, but I remember Alex Ramosi was talking about, you know, if you want to do something hard, stop trying to do another, don't go do another ultra marathon. Don't go do another fitness thing. Like maybe the hard thing is that you have to sit down and have the uncomfortable conversation with your wife consistently, or maybe it's like learning how to do something hard inside your business. It's not always about the physical pursuits because that's also your comfort zone. And that's the season that I'm in. Like, it's just so, but like, I think, I think each individual has to assess what they're, what, what can push them to that point where they can gain that awareness because there's so much, there's so much good that comes from being uncomfortable. There's so much good for that comes from understanding that you can survive incredibly challenging tasks. And that's what fitness and running give you. And I also give you the time, like there was no, like, in the, in that experience, like I didn't listen, I don't listen to things. If I'm going for like a jog or like, I'm like, you know, casual recovery. Yeah. I'll listen to a podcast or audio book, but when I'm doing my long runs after like one hour, I'm like, all right, I just need silence. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I just, you know, the, like there's like, there's no benefit to like, I can't focus on two things at once. And so my brain needs to be focused here. And the point of that is you learn so much about yourself. Like when you run, running is interesting because I remember my first half marathon, I learned so much about myself, which is I use other people as a gauge of my own progress because there was people who were at this point where it looked like they were turning. And I was like, oh, I should go slow because I think that I'm going to turn and that would probably be the best thing for the turn. Those people run a totally different race. Like they were going in a totally different direction because they were only on like a 5K or a 10K. And I was on the half marathon, which meant I had to keep going. I was like, oh shit. So I'm that's a, that's a cue, right? I'm using other people to gauge how hard, cause I could keep pushing and turn and blow them all away, but no, like they look like they're going slower. So there must be a turn. I should go slow too. It's like, okay. Using other people as a metric. Um, second thing was as I was running, started off as my first half marathon. I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. And I'm like at like a seven fifteen, seven thirty. I'm like, Holy shit. Like I'm going really fast. And as I start to settle in, like I started to get to like 8.15, 8.30, And I was like, you know what? Like that'll put me at like an 8.30. This would be a pretty good pace for the first half marathon. 
And I remember this part of me being like, but you'll know that you didn't push yourself as hard as you possibly could. Like you'll know, like everyone else will tell you how great of a job you did, but you will be the one who knew that you had so much more that you could have given to this. Okay. So I'm using other people's effort as a way of determining how hard I can push myself. And there was another point in the run where like, I found myself looking at people who were running by me this way as I was running straight and I was looking them in the eye. And I was expecting, like, I was like, like, cause some people would wave, they say good job, whatever. I was like, why do I care about getting their affirmation? Like, why is that a part of me? That's very fascinating. And I learned that. And okay. And so it doesn't mean I have to change everything about myself, but I at least understand that. And so now I have a gauge to ask myself when I'm doing something, is this because I actually want to do it? Is it because there's a clear reward in place or am I just doing it arbitrarily because I think it's going to get me this this part of my psychology which is the reward system that i've based my life around that's a really helpful model because you'll end up saying yes to things that don't actually serve your greater good but serve that dopamine hit in the moment and so you gain that from running so i i think that each individual should assess what their threshold is for discomfort push that level of discomfort, whether it's running or doing meditation or um, a great workout routine, or for some people, it's literally just getting into the habit of walking again, right? Like just go out and do a 15 minute walk by yourself or with your dog without anything in your ears. Like if you, if you start pushing that threshold, you start to understand yourself. And at first there's going to be a lot of things that you are uncomfortable with about you right? There's going to be things that you're like, oh, well, I, I don't like this part of me, or I wish that wasn't the way. And that's wonderful because once you understand that, then you can work to improve it. Yeah. You know, I'm still kind of like stuck on like, why did you pick running? You know what I mean? Cause you could have tried to do like strong man, CrossFit, powerlifting, another bodybuilding competition. You know, like what made you pick running? Because the, you, know, you know, a lot of people who are really heavy into lifting weights don't want anything to do with running. Like there, it's not many. So like what made you go with that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, two things. I tried to do powerlifting again after I stopped bodybuilding and then I got hurt. So I had to work on my mobility. And I think if I'm just auditing myself, it was two things. I had a client who wanted to run a half marathon. I was like, I've never done that. So it's really hard for me to program. So, I, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm educated and I learned and I, I put a program together for her and she did great. But then the client that I was living with was like, I want to run a 5k in under 20 minutes. And I was like, shit, there's no way that I can do that. Like, there's just like, so I remember the first time I ran a mile, I was living in Santa Monica and I'd lived in LA for all this time. I never once ran on the beach. So I remember the first time I ran like two miles, it was probably like a 12 minute pace, 10 minute pace. I was like, Oh my God, I ran two miles. Like this is so exciting. Like two miles. Like that's so far. Right. Like, and as I started to work with this client in Dallas, I remember the month, the second month I lived with him, that was what he told me his goal was. He couldn't run because he had bad back hip problems. But during that time I lived with him, I, I, I broke 20, or I might've run like 21 minute 5k or a 20 minute, 30 second 5k. So it was, it was totally about validation from him because I was like, if I, if I can impress this person, then he'll keep me around. Right. Like it was, it was totally about that it, based in the relationship, but also the relationship with him. It was so cool because 
I get to live with this person who's incredibly successful, incredibly wealthy. And um, he's got a company of like 3000 employees and it changes your perspective on how someone who has that kind of wealth lives. Like you think it's all like, not you literally you, um, but like people think um, it's all about like beautiful cars and like, you know, like all this like abundance. And of course those things come with, with wealth, but I saw all the stress. I saw all like the, the, uh, I'll say fear or the, the anxiety or like the moments where it's like, yeah, you know, he's constantly answering emails. But I also saw the separation of like a good life because he's like, yeah, like I've built compartments in my brain where it's like, hey, I compartmentalize this thing. I compartmentalize this thing. I know how to be present here and then how to engage and like tap into it, tap into it, tap into it, tap into it. So he was constantly giving to me, right? He was constantly like, Hey, here's this thing for like, here's what I see that you're doing wrong. Like you can't kind of became a mentor and started like teaching me things that I didn't know about life, about being successful. And I think a part of the running became, became that. And, uh, then if I want to take it the next step and just, you know, share more, um, then he fired me. Um, (laughs) and so there's a long story short, uh, there was just a a small disagreement we had. It wasn't like a brutal firing. It was just like, Hey, like, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I'm good for now. And there was dialogue about like why that was, um, it was just a miscommunication. And then I was like, shit, like I ruined this relationship. Like I totally destroyed this relationship. Um, at the same time I was running a second company that this is my, my first coaching company and that coaching company just, I was trying to hire people and I had no idea what I was doing. And I was just all over the place with my marketing and my messaging and my mission. And that business started to fail. And I remember I, I tested a few things. I launched another product and like I had one day where I made like 8,000 or $10,000 in a day and all the contracts came back and people wanted their refunds before the program even started. Like, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like it just, it wasn't like a bad product. It was just like, Hey, you know, this is like, for whatever reason, didn't go through. And so I'm like, shit, what does that feel like? (laughs) Uh, Massive depression. Um, (laughs) A lot of like, so the, the firing, the failure of the company, um, that whole experience, it was just depressing. And I reached the point where I was like, I'm done. I'm going to take a whole month off of anything. Like no business, like no business. It's not like I was going to sit around and play video games, but I was like, I need to stop. Like one of the things I tell people is like, one of the best things you can do when things are going wrong is stop doing what you're doing. Like when things are going wrong, stop doing what you're doing because because you need a you need to reflect and assess what's causing the problem. Because if you don't if you don't stop, then you allow things to continue to get worse. So one of the things I've learned in that experience was stop doing what you're doing. Like not doesn't mean you have to take a month off, but you need to like hit pause and you really need to reflect. And that's what I did. And what was amazing, so like this point, I would say I was depressed maybe a little bit of suicidal thoughts. Like I was like, it was not good. Not, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't not have that experience, but it was not fun. Um, it was a lot of pain. And I remember I was kind of running at the time. I lived on this lake in Dallas, like a 10 mile loop. And I was running in somewhat. And then I remember seeing this sign for a half marathon. It was like the sign for half marathon. It was always, it was around the lake. And it was coming up like that week and I hadn't prepped for it. 
And I remember saying like, I'm going to take this month off. I had one person who was interested in the program and I was like, if they join the program, then I'm going to sign up. Right. Because I don't want to like, I, I'm broke. <laughs> I'm broke <laughs> right now. So I'm not going to go spend the. the are <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to go sign up for this, but like, if this happens, I will do this. And the, the gentleman joined the program and the next day I signed up and that was the one where I pushed myself. That was my first ha- half marathon where I had like all those insights and I ended up running like a 750, 758 pace. So that kind of like, I, I, what I found is I need something for me that helps me feel like I'm pushing myself. Like even like yesterday, like yesterday's run of the 25.6 instead of the 34, the whole point of the run is to feel like I'm pushing myself. Is the tap in that part of me that makes me feel alive, that give like that shows me my spirit, shows me my soul. And if I can do that, then then like that's what I have learned. And that's what I gained from running was like it allowed me to experience my spirit. Like it gave me my power back. Cause after I left bodybuilding, I felt like I didn't have my power. Like I I I had this image, I'd had this thing that was such a release and such a focal point in my life, and then I decided I didn't want that anymore. And so I the, the experience of running is tapping into that part of me that makes me feel powerful. So that's kind of where the desire to run came from. Yeah. That, that makes a lot more sense now. Cause you know, there's always like, like I said, there's always, especially to like, as people get older and older, there's like usually like a, like a pretty clearly defined like trigger point that makes someone jump into something like that. And, and so like if, if for someone, for instance, that, you know, like maybe someone that comes to you that wants coaching and they're like, like, you know, someone that you mentioned, like that gets out of breath and they tie their shoes. Like I, they're probably in a similar state where like they haven't experienced what it feels like, like one to like really push themselves and then be successful at it and, and start having, you know, that confidence starts snowballing. How do you get them to start getting to that point? Because then once you get one of those wins and then you you get momentum and things start falling into place but it's like getting the first one is is always like the biggest struggle yeah i think the key thing is having clarity on where you're going so what we try to do and what we work to do and this is like our aim is you have to understand people have different values and so we you, this isn't part of the coaching per se but it is understanding the client so i try to like figure out like okay what is the aim of their health, right? So what is the aim of their health? Do they need to lose, lose 30 pounds? Do they want to be more flexible? Um, like what is like, do they want to change their body? What is like the aim that they're going for? And then what we do is we get them to associate growth with like accomplishing that with growth in another area of their life they value. So if you want to make more money, like let's say you're a successful business person or a salesperson, and you're like, oh well, I'm make I I'm having I'm having some moderate success or I have good success, but I want more, and I'm starting to recognize that my health is in conflict with that, or my health is in conflict with my longevity, then we have to assume and associate that loss of weight or that health, the gain gaining of health, with progress in another area, because if someone doesn't value their health highly than just telling them like, Hey, you're going to change this and you're going to do it. And like, you're going to receive the 30 pounds of benefit. It's like, well, but how is that going to impact the thing that I value the most, which might be, I value wealth. 
okay, well, why do you value wealth? Well, because I grew up poor and I know what it means to not have money. And I know that I want to be able to provide my kids with a greater opportunity than I had. Okay. So you value your family. Yes. I value my family. Okay. So if you lose 15 to 20 to 30 pounds and you become healthy, right? The identity change, you become a healthy version of you. How does that impact your family? Well, the way that impacts your family is it gives you the opportunity to have those gifts for long-term. It gives you the opportunity to um, do long, do for them long-term. Uh, and that will in turn allow you to make more money too, right? Because you're probably healthier, you have more energy, all those things come into play. But what we want to do is we want to see the target. We want to get very clear on the target. We want to understand why it's important, what impact it has. And then we want to focus on seeing it as an identity change. Instead of just seeing it as I'm 30, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. Like, no, you're going to become a healthy person. Right. And, and that's something that James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits, uh, identity-based goal setting, identity-based habit change. You want to start to associate yourself as someone who is changing their identity so that that way the progress sticks long-term and you see it as something that you're pursuing in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of like something that, you know, if you kind of like, like fall into something hard, you know, like, like for instance, you know, just even jumping into like myself with running, the, there was a lot of things like I didn't know like that about clearly defining a goal. I just had these like very blurry ideas of why I wanted to do something and then as, you know, I kind of got into them, I started understanding, like, like it kind of forced me to start clearly defining those things. And you know, it happened with fitness and, you know, that, that is why, like, I find fitness to be like the most interesting thing because it's somehow, it's like a safe container to experience life without having to go through life experiences, if that makes sense, where it's like, like even like your, your, your race and like, like running in general, especially ultra running, it like somehow feels like, like it's a, a time multiplier where like you get to live one year or five years, you get to do that in a day. And, you know, that's always like the hidden thing that you, you know, people don't really care about and fit like when they first get into fitness and you can't really sell someone on that because it's such like a, um, it's such an idea that's like kind of just so like theoretical. It's like, you, you just don't really believe that that's part of it. And then you get into fitness and it starts giving you all these different lessons. You start learning about life without having to experience the whole thing. When you were talking about your, your race and like all the thoughts that started going through your head, that that's always like the most interesting part to me, because like, that's like when you start really getting to the point where your body is worn down like your brain just starts trying to give you all of the best reasons why like you should just not engage in this activity. That's super difficult. Where it's like the guilt of like, oh, I'm doing this on her birthday, you know, like that's like a great reason to quit where it's like, well, you don't want to be selfish and ruin her, her birthday. And you start seeing all of these like tricks, the mind can play on you and, and, and how it gives you all these really good reasons. And it, and it kind of like trickles out into everything where then I start recognizing, you know, like whether it's just something simple, like, you know, like trying to do something with like business or something where I'm like, I don't want to do that right now. And I have a perfectly good reason not to do that activity right now. I, mean, I know something I should be doing. And it's just like these little tricks, your brain plays on you. So like when, when you were in that race, 
how did you reason your way through those things or did you ignore them? What was like, how did you work your way through all of those different like brain tricks to get you to quit or slow down or stop? When things get hard, I go silent. So I have trained myself that when things get hard, it's not that I avoid them, right? It's not that I shut down, but I think that you have to become the person who can control your thoughts, right? You have to be able to control your mind. And I think that you, you look at a race, you look at a run, you look at that experience. It's actually something I learned from Navy SEALs uh, studying NLP. And it was talking about the power of your thought. And when Navy SEALs are in cold water, they train themselves to not say how cold the water is. So like if I, and I remember that I learned that through one of my races, I was like, Oh, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. Like, yeah, well, what do you think you're going to feel? You're going to feel like you're dying. Oh, okay. So don't do that. Don't like, don't focus on, oh, my legs hurt so bad. Oh, I can't breathe. It's so hot. It's so hot. Oh, this is stupid. Don't focus on that. Focus on your breath. Focus on the step, right? I come back to the present moment because those thoughts are not the present moment. Those thoughts are my perception of the present moment. Because I can look at the present moment as, wow, like, look at how much my body can do, right? Or I can look at it and be like, wow, my body's in so much pain, right? My body can overcome the pain or I can experience the pain. It's my perception that's going to be what I focus on. So in those moments, I really try to go quiet, try to go silent. I try to just not even think, just be there. And in that run, the the redeeming quality was having Lindsay there. So like, you know, asking her like, Hey, you know, what do you think I should do? Should I quit? Da, da, da. She's like, I've never seen. And then afterwards she's like, I've never seen you so weak. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. No, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it starts with when you recognize that, cause you have to look at what's in front of you. Right. And so like when things are hard and instead of focusing on how hard they are, just, I think, tuning inward to the present moment it's just like meditation right and that's what meditation teaches you so i've been a meditation practitioner for three to five years someone like that and you know meditation people who don't want to meditate is because they they think that they're supposed to have silence and it's like no meditation is going to teach you all the things that you're thinking unconsciously or subconsciously it's going to show you what's happening inside your head when you're in your life and that's really great awareness. So like when you sit down, you can't have silence. That's happening either way. You just aren't distracting yourself. So now you can see them. Being able to start that practice and see the thoughts and see the thoughts and see the thoughts and then come back to the present moment or come back and say, is that true? Right? Am I actually a bad boyfriend for this or a bad fiance? Um, do, do I really care what other people think? you know, you get to analyze those thoughts too. So I usually find that coming back to the present moment, asking what the perception is, and then what do I want to focus on? Because whatever you focus on, you feel, right? I think that's from Tony Robbins. So just being able to have that that clarity and understand that there's more power within you than what you probably realize there is. Do you use any of the perspective you got from like your races or bodybuilding shows? Do you use that like with coaching your clients, like do you like they come to you with a problem? Do you use like, you know, sort of like, okay, I experienced that similar emotion in a race. 
you know, and this is how I dealt with it. Do you use it in that way with them at all? Yeah. I think that a lot of it is being able to tie great stories together. So whether it's like one of the biggest things that I, I don't, I mean, yeah, I, I lost 70, I lost 60 pounds in my first weight loss journey to compete in bodybuilding, but I was never really overweight. Uh, but I grew up poor or I grew up without any money habits. And so the perception of how to change a habit, it's the same thing, right? It's the same like emotional responses, which is when I'm anxious, I feel like spending money. Right. So it's the same response. It's the emotion that cue is triggered by a thought or a thought that's triggered by an like or emotion, thoughts, actions, rewards. That's what we teach people. It's like it starts with your emotions, goes to your thoughts, triggers an action, then you get your outcome, right? You get your result. So when you look at any kind of habit, it doesn't matter. You can it's you know, you think of the habit cycle, cue craving, action, reward, cue craving, response, reward doesn't matter if you're smoking, you're sitting down to have a pack of, uh, you know, or a bag of potato chips at the end of the day. It's the same habit. There's a cue, there's a craving, there's a response, there's a reward. And so I think that the more you can understand those cycles and how habits are manifesting and understanding how your thoughts and emotions are play, playing a role in that, um, you can you can kind of stretch those stories and kind of see that they're they're very similar every story is similar doesn't matter like i've helped i've helped people quit smoking um i've helped people lose a tremendous amount of weight i've helped them you know change their relationship with anxiety or drinking because of those same principles which is you have a craving and you have an action now one of the keys with habit change is you get to choose a new action and at any point you can choose a new action so like with smoking for example uh, there's this one client that I helped change her habit of smoking. It was always triggered by anxiety. And when she, and I was like, what you have to understand is like when you smoke, you have so many different habits that are happening, right? And you always get the chance to choose. So it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that there's not a neurological connection to the amount of dopamine you receive from the nicotine or the smoking and the way it gives you relief. But you have to think about smoking which means you have to go and grab your cigarettes and which means you have to open up the packet, which means you have to grab a cigarette out, which means you have to put it in your mouth, which means you have to grab your lighter, which means you have to light it. And then once you light it, you have to inhale and then you have to continue to inhale. And so what people think, I think one of the reasons why it's hard for people to change is because they see that as one habit, right? I sit down with the bag of potato chips. I'm a failure. Eat the whole bag. It's like any point you can choose to stop and you can choose. You have a choice. And so between stimulus and response, we get to take action, right? That comes from Viktor Frankl. So you get the opportunity to change. And I, I would hearken it to myself. I used to have this horrible habit of uh, buying Diet Cokes whenever I went to the grocery store. Literally looked at my profit and loss, and I probably spent like $1,000 on Diet Cokes. Diet Cokes and protein bars. Horrible, horrible habit. And it was whenever I was anxious, I would go to a gas station and I would walk up and I would take the Coke and I would walk to, I'd grab a protein bar and I'd go up and put it on the thing. And I was like, oh, I literally, like, I've had so many moments where I've gone in still and I like grab a Diet Coke and I'll hold on to it. And I think for a second, do I actually want this thing? No, I don't. And then I put it back. Right. But that's, a, and then I'll, you know, sometimes I'll even walk out of the store. Like I've had times when I was changing this habit where, because it, it was that same thing, like all, like I would, it's just so ingrained in me for years. 
I'd take it out because it was with bodybuilding. With bodybuilding, you can have zero calorie anything. So when I was hungry, associate, hey, I'm a little anxious or whatever. I'm a little hungry. Go and have something I can, I can kind of subside with. But I, I would go in now or have gone in in the past when I was changing this habit and literally pick it off, look at it. Oh, change the action, put it back. I've gone up to the counter and done the same thing. So like, I think if people discount like the whole action and you have to slow down, that's where coming present is key. But yeah, those, those same stories, they're the same. So a lot of times they do show up in my coaching or the way that we teach clients how to change, because again, I think a lot of the, the, the patterns are the same. The actions of the responses, the rewards might not be the same, but the patterns are, I think that's useful. Yeah, that that's kind of like the I think it was like the Musasi quote, where like if you know the way broadly, you'll see it narrowly. But it's like it, it, it that I always think of that whenever there's something like well, there's like a new habit of me to trying to make or trying to break. That like I I quit vaping recently, like I vape nicotine, um, and it was it was it was interesting because you know it it was just like this. All these things were just like all these actions were tied to it. I think this was something that Alex Ramosi said that someone told him where it's like nicotine isn't necessarily that addictive. It's the actions you associate with consuming nicotine. And I would see, you know, all these different actions I would associate with it. It like ruined when I quit, it like ruined coffee for me for a while because it was yeah. like of such a heavily tied habit of I would drink coffee in the morning and hit, and hit my vape. And it was so closely tied that then when I cut out the one, it like, you know, brought the, dopamine baseline lower so i would be drinking coffee like i don't even think i want coffee like i don't even think i enjoy this liquid at all like it, and it, it was interesting to see how these like actions were like if i was sitting in the car i would like reach for it in its normal spot it wouldn't be there it was just interesting and and it really opened my eyes to like the level of unconscious um interaction that i had with this object where it just became a part of like my being and you think that like you have free will and you're really making all these decisions and consciously doing things and interacting with the world. When in reality, like there's so much um, default programming that just runs with who we are as humans. And it's just, you just go with these default programs. And, and, and what you were talking about, like really is interesting to me because it, it's like, you know, a lot of the, the conclusions you came to came to is like things that I, have kind of come to as well, where it's just like, what is like the smallest incremental change that I'm okay with making in this moment? But if I'm like trying to break a habit, where it's like, maybe I don't just, you know, if I look at it as just one thing, I try to cut out the one thing. It, it, it's, it can be really difficult to like break a habit that way. But if I just break one part of that habit and it feels okay, cause I'm not, like, my, my brain is like, well, I'm not giving up that much. Like I'm still doing this, this, and this. I'm not giving up that much and just slowly like walking it back more and more and more. Yeah, I, and I found that helps so much. And then you got to tie a reward to it in the long term. Yes. Right? So if yeah. I'm thinking of like for myself, I was like, oh, I'm going to save. Like I, I have, like I have, I have financial goals. So I'm going to save two grand. Well, one of the things I learned from my mentor, the gentleman I lived with is like cream in your coffee. Cause like most people, like, he's like, you look at fitness. He's like, you look at cream in your coffee. It's 35 calories. Oh, well, if I have five, ca five cups of coffee or whatever, that's like 200 grand, 200 calories a day. He's like, I look at money the same way. He's like, so for every dollar I spend, I look out of, as, out of a hundred. So that's how I make my financial decisions about what I want to spend my money on. 
And okay, so like when I'm waste, I'm wasting all this money. Like, so what's the long-term reward that not engaging this behavior is? And so that might be money, it might be health, right? Like one of the fascinating things about health is like just by not smoking, you probably at like, and this isn't you, but like this person, if you don't smoke or you don't eat potato chips all the time, like you lose weight, you're healthy. You're probably adding five years on your life, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe just two years. How much is that worth? Right? Like how, how much is that worth? Like, cause you're only going to be here once. And I guarantee that those last years are going to be far better because you made the change. And so I think that that's what helps people too, is associate the long term. Um, because in the present moment, it sucks, right? It's just kind of like in the run, like the present moment of like the painful run, it sucks. But what's the long term payoff of victory? You know, you kind of play those things out. And I think that they matter. Yeah. Cause if you like could somehow physically like slap down two years of someone's life on the table, be like, how much, do, how much do you want to pay for that? Like, how much yeah. are you willing to pay? Like, it, you would get a sizable amount of money, you know, it's like, well, are you willing to, you know, pay in every cigarette you smoke from here on out and, and just, you, you pay with those, you know, and like you can bring it into like the physical world like that. It, it would make such a difference, but it's because it's like so hard to connect those things unless you really, really make an effort to do that, which like kind of goes to like, if it's just like this unconscious thing, that's a part of who I am and I don't bring it into like my conscious mind, then you just like continue doing that same thing over and over again. It's like, you have to like almost physically like pull it out of like your subconscious mind into yeah. your conscious mind. What's well, one of the things that Tony Robbins does is he has a, a Dickens process. So he has you like Charles Dickens um, in the book, the Christmas Carol, there's the ghost of Christmas present past and future. And so in that moment, the character of Ebenezer Scrooge experiences pain in the present in the past and the future. And it causes him to wake up the next day and change his behavior. And so he has this process where he leads you through the experiencing the pain that you're having with the current behavior in the present, the past and the future. And then you change it. What is the reward in the future? So it's like people are motivated by pain to avoid pain and to receive pleasure. Uh, the, the desire to avoid pain is far higher than receiving pleasure because we don't want to have pain. Pain is more avoiding pain. Having pain is more likely than having pleasure. So we, we experience it. But you, if you think about like, if I can associate enough pain with this behavior, right. If I can associate what happens if I don't change, like slapping down those years of my life, like, is it worth it? And the answer usually is no. Right. It's like, and that could be in your relationship. Like sometimes like I've had to work a lot on our relationship I've had to, Lindsay is beautiful. She has an amazing <laughs> soul. I've had to work on a lot of our relationship and it's usually like, Hey, like this thing, if I stretch out the time horizon, what happens if I don't change? I find that's really helpful. Um, I have, I have a, uh, I just want to jump in. I have like 1% of my battery. I don't believe my charger is anywhere around. So I don't want right, to. You're good. And, yeah. But, uh, if there's any other points that, uh, you want to add to the podcast, um, maybe like one last question or so. Yeah, I guess uh, the only last question I'm always interested in is what was the single most impactful experience of your life? Hmm. It's different seasons, so it's really tough. Hmm. That's a tough one. I don't know if I could pick a single one because uh, each one's led me down a different path. 
um, probably getting a college scholarship. That, that experience that day was beautiful. I got a call while I was at work. Um, I was working job and I got a call from the Dean of the school and he's like, Hey, I just want to talk to you for a moment. You've, uh, you know, there's a scholarship we give away to one boy and one girl at the end of every senior year. And you know, you're going to have a full ride next year. And I remember just crying and crying and crying and crying and calling. Like I called literally every single person I could and just let them know. Um, that was a really special day. And I think that probably changed my life more than anything else. Oh yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. I, just, I don't know. I find everything that you're doing really, really interesting and, and inspiring too. So like, I appreciate you coming on. And if anyone wants to get in contact with you, you know, is there anywhere you, you know, you, they could find you. Yeah. Connect with me on Instagram at Brian Pickowitz, uh, P I C K O W I C Z. That's the easiest place. And I'm, I'm really grateful for this too. This is a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate you creating space for, for this dialogue. It's been, uh, I've, I've received a lot from it and I hope other people do too.